0: It's just a rich time each Easter on Good Friday to remember the significance of the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and to prepare our hearts for the remembrance of the resurrection of Christ on Easter Sunday. And to prepare our hearts for the taking of the Lord's table, I just want to walk our thoughts through a few ideas in regards to the significance of the Lord's death and burial, the punishment that he bore upon himself, and all of this to prepare our hearts for a time of communion and remembrance of the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ when we take of the communion elements. This is a sweet time to do that very thing, is to remember the gospel, remember what unites believers together, And so if you are visiting us tonight and you are just sitting in listening, you are watching ultimately what binds all believers together. It is the message of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul famously said to an audience during the conference, What's wrong with you people? Jokingly exposing a false view that people were holding. I remember being out in a public place one time and two men were yelling at each other and saying this very thing, what is wrong with you, as they were pushing each other. We ask ourselves all the time, you turn on the news, you watch what's happening in the news and you ask, what in the world is wrong with us? What is going on? The world has lost its mind. America has lost its mind. People are heading headlong into destruction, and no one seems to be able to stop it. It's nothing new. It certainly has been bound up in the heart of man for a long time. On October twenty-fourth, 1994, a young woman by the name of Susan Smith had buckled her young boys into a car and had drove them to a lake and drove the car into the lake she returned home called the police and said that somebody had hijacked her car with her kids in the car she blamed some youth who had come around and hijacked her car, and for a week or so she told this narrative as everybody hunted for the missing children, eventually finding the children, finding the car, and finding that they had perished. After investigating, the police pretty much narrowed in on her, and she became the number one suspect, and she finally acknowledged that indeed she had murdered her own children would not expect this person to do this. This was a young lady who attended a Methodist church. She regularly went to church, and she was faithful to worship God. But I told the media this particular story because in her mind, she could not fathom giving up her children to her ex-husband, and yet her new boyfriend didn't want anything to do with these children. An author writing on this particular account in the, in the New York Times writes this. There are already whispers of abuse, of suicide by proxy syndrome, even of Prozac use. She was beginning to look less like the perpetrator than the victim. She was the victim of an irresistible impulse. She had no choice. It really wasn't her act. It really wasn't her operating, so that would be the defense. Yet, something about the act, some primal mythic aura emanating from the fact of a mother killing her young seemed to summon up the stark language of evil. There must have been a satanic cause, the author writes. What is wrong with the heart of man that he would do such evil? Even a young mom, when turned on her own little children, who is to blame when such a thing happens, when one performs such an utterly despicable act, such a selfish act? Who is to blame? Where does this come from? And how do we solve this problem of evil? Where does the fault lie? Who is responsible? And if we can identify who's responsible, how do we fix the problem? How do we fix the problem of evil? Did this just come upon her? And that she's just a helpless victim carried into this senseless and selfish act? Was she being led to do it, provoked by others? Was she being even led by some kind of demonic force? What was leading her to do this? And is she even culpable for it? These are the questions that flood our mind when we see such heinous activities around the world. Great acts of evil. How do we solve the problem of evil? That's been the question that man has been pondering for a long time. And everyone offers up a solution to this very problem. Who is to blame? What's the problem? Is there some background, some abuse? Is there something to blame, somebody? Is there a lack of love in her life? Is there bad examples? Did she have no self-esteem? Is there something that caused her in her environment that influenced her to do this evil? Maybe there's a biological answer to all this evil. Maybe it was a chemical imbalance. Maybe there was a corruption in her DNA. Maybe she's ultimately not culpable because some kind of outside influence did it to her. Is that the issue? On and on, the answers come in society as to the problem. Maybe we need to get more money to it. Maybe we need to set up social awareness. Maybe we need to find more medications. Maybe we need to do something in this world to try to fix the heart of man so that man would change and man would do what is right. That is the best that man can come up with. But God has a whole different perspective on the problem of evil and where the culpability lies. It lies in the heart of man. The heart of man that has rebelled against God, turned away from him, rejected him, and is hostile to God. And when man moves away from God, he moves further into corruption. When the evidence of sin comes out, whether it's in our own life or in the society around us, we see that there is a problem a severe problem, an impossible problem, a problem that mankind cannot deliver himself from. We face an impossible dilemma, and there's no escape from it. There is corruption all around us. There's even corruption within our own hearts. There's the evidence of evil. Evil is all around us. The question for us to ponder is ultimately this. How is the problem of this evil that is found in mankind solved? How do we solve this problem, this problem of evil? One author said it like this, We are not conditioned to expect good to emerge out of the murky mass of evil. But God designed evil so that something remarkably white and wonderful would emanate from its black depths. As William Cowper penned, Behind frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. There is a design in evil. There is a purpose. There is a good working that is demonstrated and an ultimate glory that is manifested. And that is what we come to remember on Good Friday and Easter morning. On Good Friday, we see the true depths and the ugliness of sin. When the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who had no fault, no sin, no transgression whatsoever, who lived perfectly, the only sinless man ever to walk this earth died. He was ridiculed, mocked, mistreated, falsely tried, abandoned by his friends. He was rejected, mistreated, falsely condemned, punished, led to the cross, and ultimately crucified so that he would bear the penalty of our transgressions. We remember that on this occasion because we rem- remember that there is a price for sin. There is a real evil in the world, a real transgression, a real guilt, and there needs to be a real price paid for that. It was paid by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. What is significant about this is that maybe we don't quite understand and we spend tonight thinking about it the truly impossible dilemma that we found ourselves in that the natural man finds himself in apart from God. Anyone who entered into this world enters into this world through Adam Related to Adam, the first Adam, and they are guilty by their relation to that Adam. Guilty and under then divine judgment, which then only intensifies the nature of this problem. The fact that God has said in His Scripture that He will bring judgment only intensifies the problem of evil. Clearly, you can look around right now and you can see the corruption of mankind and the utter hostility caused by that corruption, and we see that the problem is significant. Where can you go where there's safety? I mean, it was interesting, as we were in Argentina last week, Nick and I, and we were standing outside of the gates of the training center, and we were there for just a couple of minutes, and a few cars had passed, and immediately the missionary said, all right, the car's not coming, let's get back in behind the gates. Just for a couple of moments, standing there with our own luggage, waiting for the car, all of a sudden, those who lived in that area were unnerved because we were vulnerable and out there in the open, and these gullible Americans could be easily taken advantage of. It's evil around us. And we couldn't hide from it. We got on the airplane, we were talking with the stewardess, and as we were heading off, they asked where we were at, where we came from. We told them we were in Argentina, we were in San Justo, and they said, Oh, that area. It's not exactly the safe area of town. They were aware of the evil around. The very presence of evil, we are aware of and it brings difficulty in our life. And if that was enough, certainly that would be uncomfortable, but then the Bible talks about God's pending judgment. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 for example says this, in as much as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. There's life, we live, we die, And then after death, then comes judgment. Or Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9 and 10, he says this, Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We must stand before God. We must give an account. We will stand before him. So the, the promise of coming judgment is the, the, what intensifies this problem of evil and intensifies it. We can see it. We have experienced it. We know it in our own hearts. But really, I don't think we fully grasp then the significance of the impossibility of this dilemma. So tonight, I want to just show you three elements of this impossible problem. We have the problem of God, the problem of sin, and the problem of humanity. Three elements to this impossible dilemma that makes the problem of sin impossible for us to overcome first the problem of god the problem of god you say well how is that a problem well listen up there's a problem and the problem is the existence of god fact here's the first problem there's only one god And you say, well, why is that a problem? Well, because there's no other authority to rival this one God. There is one God and one God only. One creator over all the heavens and the earth. There is one and none can thwart his will. He is the God who has created the heavens and the earth. He's created everything that is contained within. He's created all the creatures of both heaven and earth and all the worlds within. And he has said this about himself. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 35, says this. says, To you it was shown that you might know the Lord. He is God. There is no other besides him. In fact, you can turn over to Isaiah 45 because we are going to get to Isaiah 45 in a moment. It says, again, in Deuteronomy 4, verse 39, Know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above and on the earth below there is no other. God has no rivals. There's no one in heaven that's going to come and match Him. There's no authority that's going to hold Him and change His will and force Him. He Himself is the only God. In Isaiah 45, God demonstrates the greatness of himself and of his ways and of his works and that he can even use the wicked nations to accomplish his purposes. And notice what he says in Isaiah 45, verse 5 and 6. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. That men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun. Notice that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. In this particular case, God is saying to Israel, I am preserver, I am the protector, I am the one who's going to demonstrate my power and authority, and there's none who can rival me. Jump down to verse 21 and 22. It says this. Well, it's starting in verse 20. It says, gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Speaking of those, again, who are worshiping the false gods that they crafted with their own hands, he's saying they're empty, they cannot save. Now notice, declare and set forth your your case, verse 21. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The first marvelous declaration from the scriptures is that there is one God, one true God, there is no other. Reason why this is a problem is because what we will see next, if this is one God who and there's no other, there's none who could thwart his will. There's none who can change his plan. There's none who could come along and decide, well, I'm gonna overrule you. I mean our kids growing up, if one of the parents made a decision, what's the first thing they did? They ran to the other parent to see if they might get favorable treatment. Maybe the other one will overrule and give, give me what I want. Dad, sent me to bed early. Mom will let me stay up and eat ice cream. We want mom's choice, not dad's. In this very principle idea here, there is no other God that can rival the Most High God, for there is no other. More than that, the Bible describes this one true God. We turn over to Isaiah 6. You see this, he describes them as holy. He is holy. Able to look into the throne room of God, standing in the very throne room of God, are these angels who are standing around the throne, and they are crying out to, to each other in Isaiah 6, 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. He is holy, by which we mean that he is both without fault, but he is also separate from evil. He is set apart. He, has, he is not looking upon evil. He doesn't dwell in evil. He dwells set apart from all unrighteousness. Perfect in all of his dealings and unstained and uncorrupted by evil. He's perfectly Holy. Which means this, that God cannot bring evil into his presence. He doesn't bring evil in and dwell with it because he is set apart and holy. He's not going to be stained by unrighteousness. So this one true God who has no rivals whatsoever is perfectly holy and just. He is without sin, without corruption, set apart in every way. And in his perfect attributes, he demonstrates... Love, mercy, forgiveness, justice, and righteousness is all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, and all-present. There is none like this God. In all of His perfect attributes, then, in His perfect holiness and His perfect righteousness, He cannot overlook evil, nor can He dwell in with evil, for He is, again, holy. Both the Old Testament In Isaiah 6 3 and the New Testament in Revelation 4 8 describe when looking into the courtroom of God and looking into his throne room and seeing God describe God surrounded by the holy angels crying out to God day and night all day long holy 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 he is set apart Which means he he can't go look at evil and be entertained by it and draw it to himself, for then he would no longer be holy. He is separate from all unrighteousness and ungodliness. Perfect in all of his ways is why Peter says that we are to be perfect, like the Holy One who has called us in all of our behaviors. We are to be perfect, set apart. God is too holy. Look upon sin too holy to simply overlook our transgressions too knowledgeable to forget our transgressions. He can't simply ignore evil. He can't forget that it happened. He cannot overlook it and just say, "Well, we we'll, won't talk about that anymore." He's too present in our lives, since he is omnipresent to not know that we committed those transgressions, certainly too eternal to forget those transgressions, too holy to overlook them, too righteous to simply accept us as we are. God, who cannot lie and change his mind, said that he would judge the wicked and punish transgression and has made it clear that his holy attributes drive him to bring just judgment on all transgressions and that's what makes the problem impossible the problem of sin that an all-powerful all-knowing eternal god who has no rivals knows transgression and must bring judgment upon that transgression this is an impossible problem that's the first aspect. Second aspect to this impossible problem is the existence of sin. The problem of sin. Man sins. And this, we can turn the rest of our time to Romans, the book of Romans. We're going to start in just in Romans chapter 1. Because this is exactly where Paul starts his gospel, when he goes to defend the gospel of God, he goes to establish the universal guiltiness of mankind and the corruption of sin. Maybe before we look at humanity's corruption, just look at the price of sin. What is the price of sin? You know, if we stole something, there was a consequence, a repayment and maybe some kind of of, of legal punishment, whether jail time or something else. There is also a price of transgression that God gives. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, the assessment is made, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are corrupt, all have sinned and fall short, and there are none who escape, So we'll see in a moment. But turn over to chapter 6. What is the price of sin? And in Romans 6, from verse 20 through 23, Paul lays this out. And he is pleading ultimately with the Christian to consider carefully the significance of, of his belief in Christ. Saying, look, if you have put your faith in christ and you now live this new life and you're living for the glory of god think carefully about the benefits of your former life what did it profit you to live in your transgression what did it profit you to live in rebellion to god what benefit did you gain from those things when verse 21 says at the end of verse 21 the outcome of those things is death they profited nothing because verse 23 says, "The wages of sin is death. Sin leads to death. It leads to separation from God. It leads to punishment. It leads to judgment. Ultimately, it ultimately leads to physical death and then eternal separation from God. It's death. That's the problem of sin. The problem of sin is that the price of it is price is death. In all sins, that's the price. A little white lie you tell, death. Murder, death. Lust, death. Adultery, death. All the rebellion against God, the price is death. For God is too holy to overlook even one transgression, let alone a lifetime of transgressions. And all sin, the consequence of that sin is death. Can't hide from that. Can't hide from that iniquity. In fact, God has made this known regularly, particularly through the Old Testament, that each man will die for his own iniquity. Ezekiel 18 and verse 18 says, "The soul that sins will die," Ezekiel 18:20 says, "The wicked will bear his own wickedness." Each man who transgresses against God's law, each man who transgresses against God's way, he will surely die. It's been declared. It's been made known the price of sin is death. So the first problem is a holy God who is separated, who knows all things, who's all powerful, who has all knowledge, who's all present who has no rivals who can thwart him, who is holy and just and good, is righteous altogether and cannot look upon evil or ignore it. The second problem is the existence of sin, and sin deserves death. Now we see the third problem, and Paul lays that out here in Romans for a couple moments. We'll look at it. He describes in chapter 1 of Romans the universal guiltiness of mankind. And the evident universal guiltiness of mankind is the moving away of man from God. that God moves away, or man moves away from God and rejects him altogether. That man suppresses the truth, suppresses the truth of the Creator, ignores the knowledge of God that is evident around him. He rejects God and heads towards corruption. In fact, one of the signs of God's judgment is for God to pull back his restraint and to turn man over to his own sin. That's what he says there in verse verse 24 of chapter 1. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts. And in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. And verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper. The judgment of God and the first sign of God's act of judgment on humanity is God pulling back his restraints and turning man over to his own corrupt desires. And that's exactly what we see played around in society today. We can't define gender anymore. We can't define right or wrong anymore. We can't even send our kids to the library anymore. We can't acknowledge right or wrong any longer because man has moved away from God and is trying to rewrite humanity absent of God. That is the corrupt condition of the heart of man. Paul goes through chapter 2 and demonstrates in chapter 2 that all are under this, Jew and Gentile, and he sums that up in chapter 3 and verse 9 when he says this, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Everyone is guilty. No one escapes. And when he describes there Jew and Greeks, Jew and Gentiles, he's describing all of humanity. All of humanity fits in one of these groups. You're either in the group of you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. You're in one of those groups, and he's saying all of humanity is in corruption. All are under sin, verse 9. All are under this condemnation. There is none innocent. And that's pretty much what he then goes on to describe from verse 10 through verse 18. There's none righteous, not even one, none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's, there's none who does good. There's not even one. And Their throat is an open grave, and with their tongues they keep deceiving the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, and their feet are swift to shed blood. And destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. And if that is not enough, the kicker is verse 18, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. They do not fear God. They do not know God. You do not speak of the way of God. All are in the realm of sin. All are corrupted by this sin. And not a single one can escape. This is the impossible dilemma that mankind finds himself in. He's in a state of guiltiness where everyone is corrupted. You can't look to any example around you and say, well, that's the one that's going to deliver me. You can't teach one another the way out of it. We're under the curse of sin and all deserve death because the wages of sin is death. And you have a holy, righteous, and powerful God who cannot overlook evil, cannot forget about evil, cannot imagine something different, cannot pretend it didn't exist, cannot forget that it happened. How do we solve this sin problem? We can't go out and collect all of our resources and say, let's just buy our way out of this if we have enough money, for God created everything we have. Does he find value in our little trinkets as if our gold is anything to him? Does he find any value in our cars and our possessions when we use his materials to create it? What could we possibly create with our hands and with our intellect if we have not first gained from him? There's nothing we could do. There's nothing man, in his own free will, can choose to do to draw nearer to God. Even if you had the possibility of having a perfect free will to go do, what are you going to do to answer the dilemma to God? There's nothing you could do. You can't fix the sin problem. We could do nothing in our own free will, even if such a thing was possible. We have nothing in our own resources. There's no authority to rival the Most High God, even if we got all the angelic powers behind us, all of Satan's forces. And even if we could convince even the holy angels to do something to join us in this fight, there is no authority that could rival God's. No Supreme Court that is higher that could stand over God's judgments and evaluate them. It's nothing. We are in utter despair, except that God so loved the world that he sent his only son for us. In comes the Lord Jesus Christ, who we remember tonight in the taking of the Lord's table. Marvelous work of Christ Christ. Who bears upon himself the penalty of sin. As John says in First John chapter two says this of Christ, My little children, I am writing these things to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Verse 2, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. In comes the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the perfect advocate, who is able to stand between us and God and intercede for us. Able to stand before the Father who is the only sacrifice i think that's exactly what paul or that john's demonstrating here in 1 john 2 that jesus and jesus christ alone is the only sacrifice to cover sin he is the perfect after, he is the perfect Advocates interacting on our behalf because he is the righteous one and he is there before the Father and he is righteous himself, able to advocate for us. But he is also the sufficient sacrifice, sufficient enough for the whole world. So that there's only one way to gain eternal life and is through the Lord Jesus Christ.